So scholars, scholars, are divided about who actually wrote the letter to the Ephesians. Some scholars think that it's actually Paul. Others think it could have been his students. In her essay, The Pauline Tradition, Bonnie Thurston writes that there are three dominant ideas about its authorship. That Paul wrote it in 60 CE. That it was written by a student of Paul's that he later went through all of the churches of Asia. Or that it was a letter written at Ephesus as a preface to a collection of Paul's letters. Because, you know, Paul couldn't go everywhere and preach, and so he'd write letters and he'd send them along. And so some people think that this was the preface to, like, a, you know, the introduction to a book sort of thing. So here's how we think it might not actually be authentically Paul. There are 50 words in this letter to the Ephesians that are not found anywhere else in the New Testament. There are 90 words in this letter that aren't found in any of Paul's other writings. This letter has really long sentences and they put phrases and clauses together in ways that aren't typically what we know to be authentic Paul. And it reflects a Jewish and Gentile unity that Paul is working toward when he was alive but that he had not yet achieved. Ephesians uses the word church to represent a global idea, whereas Paul's use of the word church meant a specific group in a specific town. Paul's church is built on Christ. The letter to the Ephesians puts the church and the foundation on the apostles. So, there's that. So what if this image of God's armor and all of this weaponry sort of stuff? It's metaphorical. Writing about what was familiar, the author of this letter used imagery from everyday life. The Roman Empire was a military empire, after all, and it was an oppressive empire. Authors, his world was ruled by military force. So it stands to reason that he would use a metaphor from that day. But it's a metaphor about protection. I have a friend named Richard who is using a metaphor of a hazmat suit. It's really the armor of God is for protection. To maintain control, empires keep people separate. They keep us fighting against one another. Empires keep us fighting against flesh and blood so that we don't have the time or the energy to fight about systems or ideologies that keep us fighting one another. If we're fighting each other, we don't have time to take on sexism or Islamophobia or homophobia. We just keep fighting each other and calling each other names. Empire likes to do that because while we're doing this, they're doing that. Don't be distracted by hate. Earlier in the letter, the author tells us to put away certain ideas and attitudes. In chapter 4 of Ephesians, the author says that we're to put away our former lives and our old selves, to put away falsehoods and begin to speak the truth to our neighbors. We should put away all of the bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander and malice. This is the diabolos that the author refers to. Three times in the New Testament, diabolos is used as malicious gossip the wiles of the devil that invades our hearts and our thoughts and our actions. 
our justification, our self-centeredness, the desire to be right at all costs, the desire for revenge, the desire to even the score. These are some of the cosmic forces that we fight against. The author urges us to be kind to one another, to be tender-hearted and forgiving of one another. Author and theologian Matthew Fitzgerald writes, that if we can't be protected from an enemy as obvious as ourselves, how can we ever find to hope protection strong enough to thwart these cosmic powers that cause us to turn on one another in the first place? The author of Ephesians thinks, but we can, but insists that this new armor isn't of our own making. Instead, the belt, the breastplate, the shoes, and the shield belong to God. Fitzgerald writes that, I can try to protect myself in a lot of different ways. I can spend hour after hour after hour constructing every sort of armor, but my efforts will fall short. The breastplate of ministerial self-righteousness, he writes, will not protect me. I have learned over the years that a helmet made of bourbon and a sword forged from cynicism are also insufficient, as are prosperity, religious zeal, fitness, and even family. None of these, he says, are strong enough to hold back the cosmic powers of the present darkness. For this battle, we need to put on the armor of God, the armor of truth, of righteousness, of peace, of faith, of salvation. Truth. The truth is, and that's always a dangerous phrase, but the truth is, that God loves us. God is a God of mercy. And we need to tear down the human devised ideas and rules and interpretations that keep us separate and apart from one another and apart from God. Righteousness isn't a holier-than-thou sense of righteousness. The New Interpreter's Dictionary says that righteousness presumes a covenant relationship which needs the active participation of both partners. We are a covenant people. We have entered into a relationship with God in which we too are called to uphold our end. Michael Kinneman says that a covenant involves a commitment to walk together, seeking to be a part of a community through prayer, through study, through conversation. Sometimes very, very difficult conversations, but conversations nonetheless. He says that covenant is a mutual agreement to hold one another accountable, intent on recognizing God's grace in each other. We are righteous when we do our very best to keep our covenant with God and God's kids. We will never be perfect at it. Fortunately for us, God does not expect perfection. Peace. We must be ready to proclaim peace wherever it needs to be proclaimed. The scripture does not tell us which type of shoes to wear. Only to put on whatever types of shoes will make us ready to proclaim a gospel of peace. Faith. In what do we have faith? People? Places? Things? Sometimes all of that. Sometimes we put far too much faith on the outside. We took too much faith in our ability to manage. We try to control people and events in our lives, or we look for things to fill up that God-shaped hole. But when we take these steps 
steps where we trust God, believing in the love of God, we can come to understand and have faith. The author of this letter, the author of the letter of Hebrews says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. As we grow in our understanding of and experience with God, we grow in faith. That's why shared story is so important. Salvation, emancipation, freedom. Martin Luther King Jr. said that human salvation lies in the hands of the creatively maladjusted. God has given us all gifts, and sometimes those gifts don't fit within our social norms. Use your creativity. Use that thing that makes you different. Use that thing that makes you creatively maladjusted so that others can find freedom and salvation. Finally, prayer is the thing that gets it done. In the message, we are told that prayer is essential. Pray hard and long. Pray for your brothers and sisters. Keep your eyes open. Keep each other's spirits up so that no one drops out. Prayer is what keeps us strong. It's what writes our mind when our thoughts are racing in a thousand different directions. When we feel alone and lost and scared, we can pray and we'll find some sort of a connection to God that we know deep down in the center of our being loves us. We pray so that we can clear our thinking of selfish motives. We we pray so that it is clear for us to be of service. We pray so that we can develop a relationship with God and that we can be more assured that our thoughts and actions are motivated out of love and caring rather than out of fear and self-righteousness. We pray so that we will be more confident that our intuition is God-centered rather than self-centered. I'm going to close this with a little inspiration from Martin Luther King Jr. He gave this sermon on Easter Sunday in 1957, Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, And he was talking about a trip that he and his wife had taken, and they were standing over the tomb of Napoleon, and he said that it was one of the most beautiful sights in the world. It was the greatest tomb erected anywhere in the world. It could only be matched, he said, by the Taj Mahal in India. And then he went to another tomb of a great hero, a great warrior, a mighty genius. He looked at Alexander the Great and all of Alexander's military power and he said, you know, he might be a great man, but this will one day come to an end. And then King says that he started to think about Genghis Khan and how all of his power came to an end. And then he said, I thought back to all of the Caesars. And even with the mighty, mighty sword of Caesar, all of that Roman Empire came to an end. The glory of Rome did fall. And then I thought about Charlemagne, and he's gone. So says King, I could see Napoleon also going down, that he had conquered more nations than any warrior ever. And I watched him as he marched onto his Waterloo, and I could see Napoleon, with all of his military power, dying and faltering with his army. And I said to myself, This is the doom of every Napoleon. This is the doom of every man in every nation that feels that its ultimate victory can come through force. In the midst of that, as Coretta and I walked away from that building, I decided in my mind to go back a little bit beyond that, and I went back about 20 centuries, and I could see a little boy being born.
I could see him at the age of 30 years and going out on his Galilean mission. He didn't have any armies with him. He didn't have any followers with him. He didn't even have 100% cooperation from them, for one of them betrayed him and another went on to condemn him and deny it. All of them deserted him at the end. But I thought about it. And I watched him as he walked beyond the hills of Galilee, just going about doing good, just preaching the gospel to the brokenhearted, healing the sick and raising the dead. And I watched him, and I looked at him, and I said, he doesn't have a band following him. He has no great army. He has no great military power. And then I can see him go out with another kind of army. I can hear him as he says somehow to himself, I'm just going to put on the breastplate of righteousness, and I'm going to take the ammunition of love and the whole armor of God, and I'm just going to march. And my friends, he started to march. So I say to you, brothers and sisters, put on whatever shoes you have that help you proclaim a gospel of peace and march. Amen.